0: you're listening to the psychedelic invest podcast where we speak with founders ceos investors advisors experts and thought leaders in the brave new world of psychedelics and entheogenic medicines brought to you by psychedelic invest bringing you unparalleled psychedelic investing data and analysis. Psychedelic Invest is the industry's leading resource for those looking to invest in the burgeoning psychedelic industry. For more information and to access all of the podcast episodes, check out our website at psychedelicinvest.com slash podcast. And now, here's the host of the Psychedelic Invest podcast, Bruce Eckfeld.
1: Welcome everyone. This is the Psychedelic Invest Podcast. I'm Bruce Eckfeld. I'm your host. Our guest today is Melissa Lavasani. She is founder and chief executive officer of Psychedelic Medicine Coalition. She's also president of the Psychedelic Medicine Impact. We're going to talk about the world of psychedelics and the world of policy and where we are in kind of really sorting through the legality, the regulatory factors of this, really education, like how do we bring the power of this medicine to to the people, right? And and all sorts and flavors and situations. And you know, what does it take really from kind of a policy point of view and a legal point of view, but also really from an education and kind of social development point of view, lots of different facets here. Melissa has a really fascinating and powerful story and has been doing some really great work in the system, figuring out how to make this stuff really happen. And she's got some really great insights and some stories and Really, some education for us. So I'm excited for the conversation. With all that, Melissa, welcome to the program.
2: Thank you for having me, Bruce. Yeah, it's
1: a pleasure. Thank you for coming on. Yeah. Why don't we just start with background? You know, I mentioned that you have a particular story around this and a reason that you've gotten involved in this area. And I think it's important to kind of understand, understand that, and understand you know why you got involved in this and, and how you got involved in this to really understand what you're doing today. So let's let's hear a little of the backstory.
2: Yeah, I don't have a very long career in drug reform. Um, this was not my expected career path by any means. And in fact, if you would have told me five years ago this was the issue that I'd be working on right now, I would have laughed in your face. And I was actually I've had a 20-year career in D.C. I was born in D.C. to Iranian immigrants. So I'm first-generation American. And I've had a pretty normal upbringing. We eventually moved to Minnesota and I came back to D.C. to kind of launch my career after I got my graduate degree and working in a variety of jobs. But I ended up with another public policy degree and working in local D.C. government. So I have about a decade's worth of my career in in local D.C. budget and finance policy, actually. And I was going through, you know, hitting milestones in my life got married, had a child, got pregnant with my second child. And that's when my world kind of started to collapse around me. And I had depression during pregnancy. And then that sort of manifested into postpartum depression, um, anxiety, suicidal ideation after my son was born in 2017. And I'd never had a serious mental health issue in my life. I've No traumatic experiences ever. And this kind of you know, threw me into our mental health care system and just left me incredibly disappointed with what my options were. It was essentially given two options. You get on two options that you do combined at the same time, get on medication, you do talk therapy and you kind of grunt it out. And, you know, I really did not want to get on SSRIs. I've, I've had friends, I've had two friends now take their lives while on these medications and, it, it was kind of tough to go through those experiences and, and imprinted on my brain, you know, a healthy paranoia about these this class of drugs. You know, they are they are only thirty percent effective in people that take them and, you know, I guess I guess it's thirty percent is better than zero, but surely, you know, we can find something better than that. And I think we have and we're on the precipice of something major in our mental health care system. But at the time, you know that was my only option. And when you have severe depression and you have a growing family, a new baby and, and a career, this is a lot to balance. So I quickly found ways to get out of even just going to talk therapy and, um, everything just deteriorated slowly over time. And, you know, it wasn't until, you know, I was, I was, it was really experiencing a, a life or death moment. I was very getting closer and closer to suicide, I was convinced I was given such amazing things and wasn't able to appreciate it. And I had convinced myself this is my life now. So I either put up with it or or take my life. And that was when a friend of mine introduced me to a podcast that was talking about psilocybin mushrooms and their therapeutic potential and treating various things, but mostly mental health. I had zero experience with psychedelics. It was a drug that I never experimented with in my youth and had no interest in it, but hearing about the research that was going on at Johns Hopkins University, NYU, and Stanford, all these really reputable academic institutions that were looking at this, it kind of made me dig into this world and find out that in the 50s and 60s there was a ton of research going on in the healthcare field about, you know, it was mostly centered around LSD and psilocybin mushrooms, but It was the hot thing back then and then we all know what happened in the 60s these drugs kind of got into the public and there was a a culture that was built around it and it was very anti-war it was very anti-nixon and that's when the controlled substances act was passed to kind of socially control all these people that were opposing these policies and you know the reasoning for that was not based in science these drugs are classified as as the most dangerous drugs uh, an american could take and you know, there was really heavy barriers around research. So that research came to a screeching halt then. But hearing these, uh, these institutions doing this research now and picking it back up in the last 10 years. And at the time I was so desperate for something, you know, it was, it was really choosing, taking a risk with psilocybin mushrooms or taking my life. So to me, the risk was very worth what I was facing. We ended up growing psilocybin mushrooms in our bedroom and, you know, I was very uncomfortable with the very big trip. So I started with microdosing and I microdosed the first three days. On that third day, I played with my son for the very first time and he was over two years old. And that made my husband kind of step back a bit and think, oh gosh, is, is there hope on the horizon for us? Um, so we continued down this road. I continued to microdose. I eventually discovered. A medicine called ayahuasca that's predominantly used in South America. It's used in a ceremony. It's it's a cultural practice that has been going on for thousands of years. It's picked up in popularity the last probably five years with a lot of veterans from the U.S. flying down to Costa Rica and South America and Mexico to participate in these ceremonies because you know, the VA has, hasn't has really been able to get a hold of this mental health issue, the PTSD that's been going on with, with veterans around our country. And, and in their own acts of desperation, they have been having to leave the country to participate in this. And they've been coming back and feeling like they have a new lease on life. So after a few experiences with ayahuasca and a lot of other work that happens, a lot of talk therapy that I was now really reengaged with, because of the medicine and other like changes in my daily practice that I that I implemented after that I realized that there was an opportunity for the US healthcare system to slowly integrate psychedelics as one of the tools in the toolkit that we use to treat people you know this is It is very promising, and the results that we're seeing from some of these clinical trials are, are, you don't get results like this with traditional medications. You're talking about for smoking cessation, one of the biggest studies that came out of Johns Hopkins, 80% of the participants five years after the original study are still not smoking. That is groundbreaking right there. So. But I knew that, like, I didn't know about this field. I, I, I did my own deep dive, and I had to just kind of figure it out on my own. There was real no real above-ground resources for me. I decided to launch a campaign called Decriminalize Nature DC, where we decriminalized natural psychedelics for the city of Washington, D.C. And that, that campaign was wildly successful. Um, we won by 76%, which, you know, broke records for ballot initiatives in the city of Washington, D.C., um and we did. We ran the campaign based on my personal story of being a working mother um, who fell down in life and picked herself back up using psychedelics. And I, it was 2020 that I launched this campaign and. It it really resonated with people because that was the first year of COVID, which, you know, that was a tough year for so many people. But for me, it was so incredibly rewarding because I was, you know, sharing my story with so many people. And, you know, this was such a private battle for so many years for me and my husband because prior to COVID, no one was really having discussions about mental health. And that that really brought it to the surface. And it was almost a part of my therapy going through and just having these campaign meetings and campaign events where I would just be talking to people about this and people sharing with me then instances of their mother having postpartum or their wife, their sister. And I suddenly realized that we have a very major issue in our country that how is it that every single person I'm talking to has been connected with a mental health issue or an addiction issue? And covid it kind of brought these to the surface and yeah. you know and now it's maybe it is a coincidence that now psychedelics are picking up some momentum mm-hmm. you know is this, this is the universe not to get too hippy dippy and um i'm definitely not a traditional type of um activist for psychedelics i i am very much like live a very average life. Um, you know, I, I take my kids to school. We go to all sorts of sports activities. I, I live a very normal life that um, a lot of people in the psychedelic space, um, you know, don't traditionally live. It's 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 an interesting movement mixed with legacy people that have been fighting this fight for decades. And, and then so the younger generations, 20s and 30 year olds that uh, feel really passionate about this issue and, you know, have gone to Burning Man for, for <laughs> since the beginning of time, you know, and, I, and I've and i never attended Burning Man. That's not like my kind of event. Um, yeah. It's cool if that's for you, but it's definitely, you know, in a desert for two weeks. It's like I, I've i got too much on my plate with my family to do stuff like that <laughs> at this point in time. Uh-huh. But yeah, it's, it, it's fascinating. So I ran this campaign and it was incredibly successful and i wanted to continue my work in this space and you know i have have put two decades of time into washington dc i have friends and colleagues that work in the local and federal level in congress for former members or are consultants and lobbyists and i was like how can i utilize the relationships and the network that i have built for psychedelics and i realized that there is a need for education for members of congress Just kind of watching the cannabis reform movement over the last 10 to 20 years and seeing how it was pretty disjointed and, you know, there's a a very big push for state reforms to happen and then the federal government was lagging behind and then suddenly we realized, oh, this is a federal issue that needs to be addressed. You know, cannabis is still a Schedule I substance to this day, which puts companies and people who use cannabis in a precarious situation. And, you know, there's a lot of tax implications that have harmed a lot of businesses and, you know, not enough regulations around it. And how can we ensure that while the psychedelic medicine issue is is slightly different from cannabis because cannabis is a play for more recreational use? And I think with psychedelics, at least initially, the initial applications of psychedelics will be in a medical context, But how can we take what happened with cannabis and learn some lessons learned from that movement and apply that to psychedelics? And I knew that hitting the ground running and just getting members of Congress up to speed on the long history of psychedelics. Because if I misunderstood what psychedelics were, surely these members of Congress who are generations ahead of me and have probably have lived through what has gone on in the 60s and 70s and maybe something, you know, I'm sure there are. Members of Congress that actually experimented on their own in different contexts, but you know, creating an organization. That's when I started Psychedelic Medicine Coalition in January 2021, and we've educated 250 member offices so far. We've held two congressional briefings and multiple fly-ins where advocates from around the country, stakeholders from the movement, come to Washington D.C. We take them to the Hill, take them to specific offices, and we let them share what the potential of this space is and it's been really exciting to have these conversations, and it's it's difficult conversations, but also, like, you know, when you walk in the door and you look like a traditional lobbyist, you're wearing a suit, and, you know, you don't have crazy colored hair, and you're... <laughs> you are not what the staffers and the members expect to see. And it's very disarming when, uh, you know, a working mom comes in and starts talking about psychedelic drugs and the potential of them in the U.S. And, And I think that's why the veteran argument has been really effective in changing a lot of hearts and minds in Congress, because a veteran, like what they've sacrificed so much for this country and, you know, they are usually really amazing law-abiding citizens, they want to do the right thing. Like They're not just trying to get high, they're dealing with some really serious mental illness and they're desperate for a solution. And I think that we can take this discussion and apply it to so many other different demographics of people. I think that Our country is ripe for a change. And, you know, there's a lot of movement and indications that's going to change. It just is going to take a a collective effort on our part to do this the right way and advocate for the right things.
1: I mean, you know, so I have a a page full of questions. (laughs)
2: Let, let me go back
1: actually to the a part of your story that I thought was interesting when you said you know you you had hesitation or you, you started with microdosing because you were worried like what was it that you were worried about was this the kind of the legal aspect of it the you know what the experience was going to be like like what were the hesitations you had once you saw that hey there might be some help here but not know, really knowing this medicine or how to take it or what it was really in, entailed
2: I think I really misunderstood what a psychedelic experience was like I think that. I was concerned about me losing control of myself and, you know, and also like you hear people go through psychedelic experiences and they relive things that they didn't even realize they went through or they blocked out in their mind. I was afraid of what I was going to find in that. And that's why with the microdose and then, you know, I, I felt silly things like before my ayahuasca ceremony. I was like, am I going to come out of this and be like a hippie vegan? You know, am I, am I going to change who I am at the core? Right, right. They're like, is this what happens? Like people do psychedelic drugs and then suddenly they're this new person. And what I found on the, on the outside of that is I am a new person, but I'll, I'm also the same person. I've always been just a much better version of who I used to be. And, you know, the things that I'm doing now, the public speaking, speaking to media I would have never done any of this stuff before. My, my experiences with like that. I was extremely introverted. It was actually funny because my husband works in politics and we always. My parents would always joke, they're like, well, when are you going to run for office? You know, he was the more public person and I would attend events with him, but it was always quite painful for me to to be at, at all these events, schmoozing and boozing with all these people. But now the tables have turned and he is he's been the main caretaker of our children while I'm launching all these things and traveling around. The world really talking about psychedelics and it's just who would have thought this but it's really helped me find my voice and figure out who I am and I have dealt with some serious things that I didn't realize impacted me and and you know I do think that like it is these experiences are like you can jam-pack many years of therapy where you're trying to like almost hardwire yourself, your brain, like through cognitive behavior therapy, you you force yourself to create these neural pathways. Psychedelics just do that and can do that in one or two doses. And then that just gets you so much further ahead in life, you know, in, in, in figuring out who you are and, you know, how you have to live. And, and I think that's why when I can be a really great advocate for this, because I have been on the side where I thought psychedelic drugs were bad. They were for burnouts. They were for people that didn't want to face reality, that didn't want to grow up. Like, I thought these things, and that's why I never did them. And then you come out, and you're like, oh, like, I've seen the light now. I I know what these experiences can be like, and I know how amazingly transformative it can be for not only that person, but the person's family and children who, who watch them, you know, kind of fall and come back up. Like, what this has done for my family in general has just been, it's brought us so much closer. And um, I don't know if we would have had that before my experiences with psychedelics.
1: Yeah. Yeah. I think one of the powerful kind of components of your story and the work that you're doing is that you do kind of represent, you know, this vast majority of kind of the U.S. who, you know, doesn't have any experience with psychedelics, probably has some hangover stigma from, you know, the 50s and 60s, you know, has some unfortunate kind of you know, associations or at least understandings of things, but could actually benefit greatly from what psychedelics can do from a mental health and, you know, kind of therapeutic point of view. I sense from your story that there's kind of these two paths, or there's this kind of two components of work that you're doing, one being very policy, you know, legal related, the other one being much more educational, bo- both of the policymakers and the general public. How do you kind of organize your effort, your time, you know, the impact that you want to have? Like, what are your goals
2: in in terms of doing this work? Well, our goals is to really reform the laws around psychedelics at a federal level. Your first thought in thinking that as well, obviously, you need to lobby Congress for that. And that's important. And educating members and their staffers is is extremely important for creating the, the foundation that we're trying to create. However, you have to remember that Everything is politics, and we're dealing with elected officials who, you know, at least in the House, have to run re-election campaigns every two years and, you know, have a constituency that they need to answer to. So the public plays a really critical piece of all this. You can lobby Congress till you're blue in the face. And that's really what cannabis had did. There was a lot of resources. When they finally went to the Hill, there were a lot of resources that were thrown in the Hill. And there were a lot of messages uh, that, that members were getting. But what was missing from the cannabis reform movement was creating that political will within the public. And not with... The cannabis users, but with people who would traditionally be opposed to cannabis and providing some education in that. So we think the lobbying piece, critical, yes, but also there needs to be some public education about psychedelics. I mean, I think the the majority of people have gotten their education about this through the media. And then there's been a lot of hype that's also been been on display in the media as well. And and rightfully so. I mean, some of the results from these clinical trials are are astounding. Like I mentioned before, the smoking cessation study at Johns Hopkins and NYU just completed an alcohol study with people that were struggling with alcohol addiction. They were having similar results in the eighties with people naturally just abstaining from alcohol. And you know, the media sees that and they like the click. So they're going to be like, this is the new thing that's going to transform society. And I do believe that like this can be transformative for our society. However, we have to be sure that when you're talking about psychedelics, and these are very powerful drugs, and they aren't for everyone. And we still quite don't understand which of the psychedelics, and there's a, a few different kinds that which is right for each person, you know, and, you know, right now there's an assumption that if you have a family history of schizophrenia, like you should just abstain from that. But we haven't really pinpointed that there. There's no data supporting that. We're just saying that because we don't quite know yet. There's some medicines that aren't, aren't okay for people with bipolar disorder. But again, like we don't have the data to support that. So while we are lobbying Congress for this federal funding for research, so we can figure all these things out, we will be, we're currently raising money to run a national messaging campaign that hits communities that, you know, aren't traditionally a part of the psychedelic movement or, or would normally be. So, you know, suburban moms in Virginia who lean Republican that are okay being wine moms and drinking their wine in the evening, but think psychedelics are can be really harmful to society. and. You know, how do we get them up to speed and bought into this so that they can create the political pressure with their members of Congress? Because it's one thing for an advocate to go into an office and do that education, but when elected officials hear from their constituents, that's a vote for them, and that's their job security. And they want to ensure that they keep that for as long as they want to remain in office, and to really create a movement that is very balanced and inclusive of every American that could potentially benefit from psychedelics. We need to ensure that everyone is is up to speed on, on what this is about. And also there's another issue with psychedelics that is it's a it's going to be a bit transformative for our healthcare system in general. You know, our traditional medication, you're prescribed by a doctor, you go to a pharmacy, you pop your pills, whether it be daily, if you're on antidepressants, it's every day for the indefinite future. Psychedelics pose a different paradigm in healthcare where this is an, an hours long experiment. It, it can vary from the type of medicine you take. Psilocybin could be. 3 to 4 hours MDMA it just completed their last clinical trial and they're about to start commercializing MDMA for PTSD that's that can be a 4 hour experience so that is facilitated with two people in the room with you at all times and there's preparation sessions that you have to do for that and there's integration that you do have to do after that and that's where the real work is done so it's not as simple as popping a pill and feeling better it's to have this experience and then, you know, talk to a licensed professional about this experience and what was uncovered. And it, it isn't really easy work to do, Um it's still really difficult to overcome mental health. And my journey has been, while it's been extremely positive and transformative for my life, it's it's been very up and down in unexpected ways, and I've made it through because I've been willing to do what I need to do to get through it. And it's just changing the way that Americans receive health care and, you know, heal themselves. and and I think it's I think it's welcome. I think that people, yeah, I think that people are have tried antidepressants, have tried anti-anxiety drugs, maybe feel a little better, but you know they don't feel 100% whole and would be open to trying something else. It's just making sure they understand that this is this is not as simple as popping a pill. Like you're you're gonna be, it's a process that you've got to be committed to. But once you get through on the other side you're so much better off and you have long-lasting results. You know, we we're only talking about one or two doses of these medicines and that alone can be transformative for people's lives. But it, it's not as simple as how we take medicine now.
1: <laughs> um, Walk us through a little bit of the organizations just so we understand, you know, mm-hmm. how, how are these structured, what their intentions are, how you're kind of leading them.
2: Yeah. So the first organization is Psychedelic Medicine Coalition. This is the one I've dedicated most of my time to, that is a member association that's focused on industry and stakeholders in the movement. So um, there is a, a growing amount of small pharmaceutical and biotech companies that have entered this space and entered into clinical trials with the FDA. There are practitioner groups, you know, there's there are therapists who are getting training, so there's training companies out there that are getting people specific licensure to do psychedelic assisted therapy. So those types of groups, they are really the demographic we're targeting with psychedelic medicine coalition. And then we have psychedelic medicine advocacy and our PAC and the the advocacy side, PMA. Um, That is the public-facing side of the work that we're doing with the public education. And then eventually, when we get the public up to speed about psychedelics, and we we have buy-in, and we've kind of neutralized any real opposition to this issue, then we can have, start having fun with our, the political action committee and playing with the election cycle. Cause you know, our, our system is set up the way it is. It, it's very much pay to play. You can have your opinion about pay to play politics. I have my personal opinion, but like, I understand that there's something much bigger going on and to, to, you got to, Honestly, like play with the big boys here Um, and to really provide cover for elected officials to that have stuck their neck out early. You know, we you know, that is one of our first goals with our PAC is that we have a kind of this amazing bipartisan group in Congress that's forming that have stuck out their necks very early on this issue when it could per- be perceived as controversial and it could cost them their own reelections, but really believe in this. And um, this is as wide-ranging as Cory Booker from New Jersey, Rand Paul, to a lot of, surprisingly, Texas Republicans and pretty conservative Texas Republicans that have gotten on this issue and are standing up for this based on what they've heard from veteran constituents of theirs. And we want to ensure that no one can run against them to, you know, so that they can remain in office, continue this work, and also recruit more of their peers to this issue. I can go in and talk to any member of Congress about this, but when they're having a peer-to-peer conversation, one senator to another senator, you know, talking about psychedelic medicine and, and the policy implications of this and why these are Schedule 1 and what what are the next steps, those are powerful conversations. And we, we kind of want to hit We want to take advantage of every opportunity we can to transform people's minds about this, and that is just one way of doing it. So the PAC, Psychedelic Medicine Advocacy, the C4, and then Psychedelic Medicine Coalition, our member association, they all really work in tandem. They have different scopes and purposes, but it's much more of a comprehensive political strategy that we're trying to employ here at at the highest level in our country. And but that's that's what we need to do. You have to be really intentional about this and really think what are the long term goals and how do you reverse engineer that into steps you can take today to change people's minds.
1: Well, so this has been a pleasure. If people want to find out more about you, more about the work that you're doing, the organizations that you're involved with, what's the best way to get that information?
2: Yeah, psychedelicmedicinecoalition.org and psychedelicmedicineadvocacy.org. We're on all social media: Instagram, Facebook, Twitter. Please check out our websites. Donate if you feel compelled to. This is we are we're trying to work as inclusively as possible, so every voice counts. Mm-hmm. Also, I'm gonna drop this little nugget right at the end here. I've starting um I just start launched a campaign called Millions of Moms. And we're trying to bring a million moms to Washington D.C. next year, so that you know we can speak from the perspective of a family. You know, moms are really powerful. They've been powerful in previous reform movements, and you know I think that a lot of these drug reform movements get taken over by voices that maybe Americans can't really relate to. But we know everyone has a mom or people are moms. And our perspective is really important and valid. And our mental health is really critical to our family's mental health. So you know, seeing the, some of the statistics about children's mental health lately is really, really alarming. And I know mothers are um, the first line in seeing all this. And, you know, we, we we want to connect moms with their members of Congress and have them share their stories of mental health and what they've watched their children go through and, and, and demand our federal government take a first step. And and fund some research to this. You know, NIH is the largest funder of scientific research in the world. And to, you know, ask for $50 million to $100 million of research, it sounds like a lot of money, but it's really a drop in the bucket for them. And, you know, we're not asking for psychedelics to be available in every 7-Eleven around the country. You know, that's, we get that, but at least let's explore the science of this and really flush out this idea so we can ensure that policy reforms that come in the future are are practical and people have access to this medicine who need it.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Melissa, this is my pleasure. I'm going to make sure all the links are in the show notes so people can get that information. Just honor the work that you're doing. And thank you so much for taking the time
0: today. Yeah, of course. Thank you for having me. Thank you for listening to the Psychedelic Invest Podcast. If you liked this episode, please be sure to leave a five-star rating and leave us a review. You can find more episodes on all the major podcasting platforms and our website at psychedelicinvest.com slash podcast.